Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we visit a cemetery in Bluefield, Virginia, and learn how racial segregation followed some people to the grave. It was hard for me as a child to understand how in the world is your mother buried over there and it's weeds. You're pointing to weeds. We'll also hear from Nima Avashia, author of the celebrated memoir, Another Appalachia, coming up queer and Indian in a mountain place. The whole time I was growing up in Appalachia, I was like, well, I don't know if I'm Appalachian because I'm Indian, and there are very few of us here. And then when I moved to Pittsburgh, my Appalachian-ness sort of became like the defining thing. And we remember Herschel Woody Williams, the West Virginia native, was America's last living World War II Medal of Honor winner. He died last summer at the age of 98. So we broke the boxes open, and here are flamethrowers that none of us had ever seen before. We didn't even know it existed. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. America has a long history of segregating black and white people. In restaurants, schools, buses, even in death. For decades, the graves of black residents in a Virginia community were neglected in the town's segregated cemetery. It might have stayed that way if it hadn't been for the efforts of one persistent woman whose family was buried there. Folkways reporter Connie Bailey Kitts brings us this story. I grew up in Bluefield, Virginia, across the street from the town cemetery. My dad and I would go for walks there. He'd see a grave marker and tell me stories about the little girl who tried to save her siblings from a fire, or his school friend shot down in World War II. But there was a whole segment of our community that he couldn't tell me about, because their graves were overgrown and hidden in the woods until recently. Susie, who did you see right there? Who? Trig. Oh, yeah, Trig. I knew some of the Trigs, yes. That's 96-year-old Thedia Harris talking to her daughter, Susie Green. They're searching for names that Thedia might recognize as we walk across the slope of Maple Hill Cemetery. We got the grass cut. Yeah, that looks good. Mm-hmm. Got a chair up there to sit down. The grass hasn't always been cut, and there hasn't always been a place to sit down. Not back in the 1950s when Susie was a child. My mother would bring us out here to see her mother's grave. But we couldn't see it, the marker, because it was nothing but brush. And it was hard for me as a child to understand how in the world is your mother buried over there and it's weeds. You're pointing to weeds. This was the town's African-American cemetery. It was established in the 1890s. There was a larger cemetery for white residents as well. The two lie next to each other with a strip of pavement keeping them separate. Over the years, black families were increasingly unable to bury relatives in this section of the cemetery as it became completely overgrown with thick brush and trees. And you know it's not going to be equal if it's separate because if it's equal, then why is it necessary to be separate? Joseph Bundy is an African-American community historian. I spoke to him by phone. He was a longtime resident of the Bluefield area, and he remembers life under Jim Crow when segregation was cradle to grave. When you were, like, born in segregation, you couldn't be born in the white hospital. You weren't accepted at, at your birth, and you're not going to be accepted at your death. The most sacred part of your existence being your birth and your death. It wasn't until the 1950s and 60s that cemeteries in the South stopped segregating by race. Ruth Jackson is 91 and grew up next to Maple Hill Cemetery. She remembers watching the African-American funeral processions in the late 1930s. They would come down and put the bury in the black cemetery. They had their coffin in a wagon. I was a little tiny girl, five or six or seven. And uh, they would be singing. They sang all the way up the street, turning into the cemetery. Oh, I'm so glad. Trouble don't last always. Oh, 
That's Joseph Bundy singing Hush, Hush, a funeral song he learned from his father. The last funeral in the black section of Maple Hill Cemetery was in 1964. When I was a teenager in the 1970s, I used to cut through those woods, not realizing this is a burial place for nearly 300 people, pastors, midwives, stonemasons, and veterans. And what I also didn't know was that the town owned both sections of the cemetery, though it only maintained the section reserved for whites. It might have stayed that way, too. But in the early 2000s, a volunteer working with the Historical Society made a discovery, and she realized something that others seemed to have forgotten. June Brown was looking through Old Town records when she found cemetery receipts for payments with the words colored section written on them. The town had owned the black graveyard, and it had sold burial plots to black residents. I just thought, why are those graves not being taken care of? These plots were paid for. A search of courthouse records later documented the town's original 1896 purchase of the land for the Black Cemetery. But if it's a public cemetery, then you you don't have the right not to take care of it. And that's what I found in those papers. June says she thought about going to the town council to press them to do something about the neglected graves, but she felt uncomfortable. Bluefield is a small town, mostly white, and she didn't want to make waves. Looking back, I should have gone to the town council. I should have made a bigger stir about it. But I didn't do that. I regret that now. But June did tell a former town manager, Art Mead, about the receipts. He had been manager when the town had put up a chain-link fence between the white and black sections in the late 1980s. Art began petitioning town officials to acknowledge ownership and remove the fence to take care of the abandoned cemetery. But he says some officials didn't want to hear about it. The question I asked more than once is like, okay, we have white people on one side of this fence and black people on the other side. The land was owned by the town in both settings. Fees were collected by the town, but yet we're treating the two sides differently. How does that not equate to racial discrimination? It took about a year, but the town council finally voted to remove the fence and began clearing some of the brush. And that brings us back to Susie Green. In October 2007, about a year after the fence came down, Susie took a drive over to the Black Cemetery with her Aunt Aquila and she learned something she wasn't expecting. Her family had property rights in the cemetery. When we drove up, she said, uh, now, Dad has a plot over here. And uh, I said, a plot? And she said, yeah, I have the original deed to the plot. I said, what? She said, yeah, I have the original because my mother gave it to me and told me to keep it. And when Susie got a look at the deed, she saw that it was dated a hundred years, almost to the day they had been standing there. Susie saw that as providence, and it inspired her to take action. She contacted a local reporter, and the paper ran a front-page story with a photo of her aunt holding the notarized deed. She asked the town to clear more brush so her family and others could have access to their ancestors' graves, and she asked for a walkway and a plaque that would tell the story of the people buried there. It's not about looking back and pointing a finger. With me, it never has been. It's about going forward and healing the the racism that caused this condition, just getting through it. And the best way I thought to get through it is to remember it as a point in history. It would take Susie the next 15 years working with four different town managers to reach her goals. In 2012, the town council would vote to restore all of the African-American cemetery. But even then, Susie says it didn't go smoothly. At one point, the town brought in excavators and bulldozers to clear the site, displacing grave markers. When we came out here and saw those huge yellow earth movers, and I thought, that's, that's not the way you do it. When spring came, the town planted grass and began regular maintenance paid for by the town's perpetual care fund. Good morning, Tesla Lake. Good morning. 
We are celebrating a federal holiday. In the summer of 2021, Virginia made Juneteenth a state holiday, and Susie took her family to the celebration in Tazewell, the county seat. Susie made an announcement there. We have been able to apply to the Virginia Historical Resources to obtain a highway marker that will have the history of Maple Hill Cemetery. Five months later, on a cold and windy Thanksgiving weekend, a group gathered in the cemetery to witness the unveiling of that historical highway marker. Charlie Stacy, the county supervisor who represents the Bluefield area, was there. The first thing that comes to my mind, I think, is an apology that we should not have had to have an event like this. The folks buried behind me are as much of making Bluefield, Virginia what it is or the folks buried in front of me. And yet I never knew this section even existed. We stood on a crest overlooking both sections, black and white, about 8,000 gravestones total. Susie told the crowd that naming the names is about more than restoring graves. When we visit the graveyard, we are visiting the remnants of an African-American cultural system, a value system. We are touching base with the principles for which they stood. We may never see them on a postage stamps or streets and avenues named after them, but there was dignity in their lives and there is dignity in their deaths. Susie has commissioned a memorial of three tall granite stones that will include the names of those missing grave markers, and the town has pledged to help pay for it. Somebody calling my name. Ooh, hush. For Inside Appalachia, hush. I'm Connie Bailey Kitts in Bluefield, Somebody Virginia. Somebody calling my name. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. What shall I do? Thanks to the late Dr. Jerry French for his help with research for this story, and to Glenn Kittle of WVVA Television, Bluefield. That story is part of our Folkways reporting project covers arts and culture in the region. To hear it again, or to listen to any of our other Folkway stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Recently, Inside Appalachia put together a list of summer reading suggestions. We had everything from A is for Appalachia, a children's book from Kentucky poet Frank X. Walker, to Barbara Kingsolver's Pulitzer Prize-winning Demon Copperhead. We had so many good books to choose from, we couldn't fit them all into the show. Like Nima Avashia's collection of personal essays, Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place, The Daughter of Immigrants, Avashia grew up in Kanawha County, West Virginia. Last year I spoke with Avashia. I started by asking about her hometown outside Charleston. Tell me about Cross Lanes, because it, it's very present in your book, and it almost feels like it's a character itself in some ways. Yeah, well, the first thing to know about Cross Lanes is that it's not actually a town, um, in a way. It's, it's unincorporated, it always has been, and it has this sort of from the highway, if you looked at Crosslands from the highway, what you see is a bunch of gas stations and fast food restaurants. A lot of people will say if they've ever been to West Virginia and they've ever been across lanes and they're not from there, a lot of what they say is, oh, we stopped there to get gas or we stopped there to eat something while we were passing through. So it's not like a place that people visit necessarily, but it is a place where a lot of people live. Once you get past the gas stations, though, it's a lot of little communities that are kind of like um, a lot of them were planned communities. They were built around the same time. Developers would basically just build out a whole community, kind of um, all the houses would have the same footprint. Um, you could go into any house in the neighborhood and it sort of operated in the same way. And so I grew up in one of those little neighborhoods and it was called Westgate. And it was an incredible place to grow up. Um, I grew up on a street where everybody knew each other, where people left their doors unlocked 
where kids just went in and out of each, each other's houses and in and out of each other's refrigerators. Um, and there was this real shared sense of, of being raised, not just by your parents, but being raised kind of by your community. And that really extended past my street. Um, there was this sort of very hands-on approach to mentoring and cultivating community and cultivating young people that really marks my growing up. And is is such an important part, I think, of who I am today it is because of growing up in Crosslands. Your your family located, I guess, in West Virginia in Crosslands because your father worked for Union Carbide. What what was it like growing up in the shadow of the chemical industry and with, with him working for, you know, such a such a prominent employer at the time in the state? I remember from very, very little that when um, when when the air would start to smell, I knew the smell of the chemical. Like I could name it. I knew when Mercaptain was in the air, right? But also I grew up in a place where you could smell the chemicals in the air. Um, and my dad would get called to the plant late at night or in the morning if there was an accident. You know, I was five when the Bhopal incident happened and my dad went to India for several weeks um, as part of Carbide's response. I remember the sort of tension in the community post-Bhopal because Institute also made methyl isocyanate. So same chemical was being produced in both places and people were anxious. And so I think I always had this awareness from very little that the work that my dad did was fraught, um, that it was it was what was putting food on our table, but it wasn't uncontroversial work. It was work that people had very complicated feelings about. And people who worked there, worked there because it was the work that there was to do. But I think that also a lot of us carry the awareness that that work had consequences. It had health consequences. It had environmental consequences. Um, it had labor consequences. Carbide is this very complicated mix of emotions for me. The plant used to rent out the the skating rink at the Civic Center every Sunday for families. And we went ice skating every Sunday. And they used to have a camp for the kids of the employees at the plant, Carbide Camp. And they would, every summer, kids from the camp, uh, from who whose parents worked at the plant, could go to those camps. And so there were these ways in which I think being associated with Carbide in some ways was like incredibly enriching of our experience, um, but also came with costs and came with complications. I know for me growing up, like I went to college in Rhode Island and that mm-hmm. was really when my identification around growing up in Appalachia crystallized. I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you've shaped your Appalachian identity along, along the way, you know, from that childhood in Cross Lanes. Yeah, you know, it's funny to hear you say that because that's a similar thing as what happened to me, right? The whole time I was growing up in Appalachia, I was like, well, I don't know if I'm Appalachian because I'm Indian and there are very few of us here. And then I, when I moved to Pittsburgh, I my Appalachianness sort of became like the defining thing. Like there were Indian people around me, but they weren't like me either. Um, and people had a lot of negative things to say about the place where I grew up, which I think is really ironic now when uh, when I hear Pittsburgh sort of claiming its northern Appalachian identity. And I think about the things that people in Pittsburgh used to say about Appalachia. I'm like, how did we get this far in 20 years? I don't know. But I do think that in college, I started to sort of surface the differences between where I was living and where I was raised. And I think those differences have only become more and more salient the further I've gone from Appalachia. I've lived in Boston for almost 20 years, and it still doesn't feel like home to me. Culturally, I just feel like there is this way in which the pace at which life moves here and the coldness of this place, both the literal and figurative coldness of this place, makes it really hard for it to feel like home. Um, And so I sort of feel like I've always just sort of existed with this feeling of like not, not knowing totally where I'm supposed to belong in it. But I also think that as I have read more and more Appalachian literature, it's actually helped me to find my way into in, into an identity in a way or into a way of understanding my relationship to place that I think when it was just me trying to make meaning of it in my head, I couldn't. But then I'm like reading reading writers like Frank X. Walker, reading writers like Silas House and Ann Pancake and Brees DJ Pancake and starting to see that there are these themes and patterns and trends. You said Cross Lanes is a character in my book. And I think in general, and Anne Pancake says this a lot. She says, 
place is a character in Appalachian literature. I think there's a way in which as I've been writing and reading, it's helped me to find my way into where I might fit in this narrative in a way that I think, I don't know that I could have located at any other point in this journey, but that in some ways, like the, the ways in which the Appalachian writing traditions have shaped or informed the way I think about my writing and the way I approach it is, is a way in which it's, it's helped me feel closer, I think, to Appalachia than I have in a really long time. Coming up, we'll hear more of my interview with Nima Avashia. That's after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. We're speaking with Nima Avashia, whose family immigrated from India to West Virginia in the 1970s. Her book is Another Appalachia, coming up queer and Indian in a mountain place. Here's an excerpt. I'm going to be reading from Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place, and I'm going to read a little bit from the essay Nine Forms of the Goddess. It is 1982, and nine Indian women have gathered in a circle in a basement in Cross Lanes, West Virginia, to celebrate the festival of Navratri. The basement floor is covered with bright blue indoor-outdoor carpet, The walls are lined with honey brown faux wood paneling, and there's a red metal beam in the center of the room where a lighted brass pot called a garbo and idols of deities should typically stand. In sharp contrast to their damp surroundings, these women dress in their heaviest silk saris and best jewelry, finery brought with them in suitcases that traveled 8,000 miles from India to New York, sometimes by way of Kenya or Uganda or England, and then another 500 miles from Jamaica, Queens to the hills of West Virginia. The women gather for as many of nine nights as they can spare each autumn. In Gujarati, nav means nine and rath means night. Each night, a different color inspires their clothing. Each night, a different incarnation of the goddess Durga is the focus of their worship. Durga, queen among Hindu goddesses, warrior for good, vanquisher of evil. She's often depicted astride a tiger, holding a sword, a trident, a mace, and a dagger in her many arms. Durga literally means unassailable the mother goddess who will not be challenged or questioned in her battle to preserve the dharma of the righteous. These worshipers of Durga begin each night the same way, singing the Matajina Garba in voices that are pitched and clear. With their words, they praise the many forms and powers of the mother goddess. They slowly clap and slide around the circle, their motions repetitive and rhythmic. They pick up speed. The two-clap step gives way to a three-clap. Their bodies begin to blur, faces lost in a whirl of spinning, shining colors. The smell of sweat mixing with that of perfume and powder fills the room. In the morning, tiny purple bruises will dot their arms, elicited by the repeated banging of their glass bangles. The soles of their feet will bear the red marks of carpet burn. Their waist will host near-permanent indentations from the tightness of their petticoats. But for these nine nights, there is no pain insufferable enough to make them leave the circle early. Nine women gather, nine nights, nine colors, nine forms of the mother goddess spinning in front of me. We've talked a little bit about, you know, the Appalachia part of the title and even a little bit about coming up Indian. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to hear um, more about, uh, you know, coming to terms with being queer and how, whether the community inside Appalachia, the role it played in that? You know, I think that it's important to remember that we're around the same age, you and I. um, And when we were growing up, it was the sort of height of the AIDS epidemic. Um, And any visibility around queerness was really tied to HIV and AIDS. And so the narrative was incredibly negative by and large. Um, And so it was either negative or it was invisible. Um, And 
And I think that that was the, the dominant experience I had around queerness growing up was one of silence. Like I remember the first gay West Virginian I met was actually when I was in Pittsburgh and I was 19 and I helped to bring a piece of the AIDS quilt to campus. Uh, and the closest section of the AIDS quilt was located in Wheeling, West Virginia. And I remember talking to the man who brought it and, and really pretty naively just basically being like, I didn't know any gay people in West Virginia when I was growing up. And he was like, well, they were there. You might not have known they were there, but they were there. And I think that that was probably the defining experience for me was just this notion of invisibility. Like, I think it took me a lot longer to figure out my identity because I didn't have models. And it was really easy for me to attribute like feeling like I was on the outside to race because like that was the most visible marker of difference. Uh, but in retrospect, I can also see that race was one layer, but queerness was another one. And I think that sort of coming to that identity or understanding myself as a queer person took me a lot longer because of the absence of models. I think it's part of what actually motivated me to write the book was that there are young queer people in West Virginia right now. There are young brown queer people in West Virginia and Appalachia right now. And like, I don't know, I want them to know that there are people in the world who look like them um, and who came up the way they're coming up and who sort of struggle to ask those questions and make meaning for themselves. And I hope in some ways that having access to this book makes their road a little bit easier. At the same time, I feel like there were also things about growing up in Appalachia that allowed me to think really differently around ideas of community and family that are much more in line with queerness um, than, I, than, I, than I think people would necessarily know looking at it from the outside. Like uh, Anne Pancake's going to come up again because she talks about this idea of the kinship economy, right? And this way in which Appalachian people are in community with each other and relational with each other that is not based on family lines, but is based on like, I see you, you see me, we recognize a need and we try to support each other. And we don't let definitions of this is my relative and this is not my relative be the thing that trip us up. That idea is quite queer in nature. Choosing your family, figuring out like who is my chosen family is such a, such a part of queer experience. And yet it was also deeply a part of my Appalachian experience. Like that's not different. It's actually very much the same. My blood family lived 8,000 miles away in India. My neighbors on Pamela Circle are my family. They chose me and I chose them. And like that had nothing to do with, with blood. It had to do with choice. And so I think it's this funny thing where there was invisibility in some ways, but also there are certain ways of being in Appalachia that I think actually are, are really resonant to then how I experience the world as an adult and the ways in which choosing family and figuring out who your people are. Like I learned how to do those things growing up. As we're talking here, just the connections you make and that commonality you find is basically pattern recognition. I'm a hetero, white, cisgender guy. And yet, as you're talking through, I'm thinking about how the shooting at the Backstreet Cafe in Roanoke in 2000, I was living in California, but I saw that news that was a gay bar in Roanoke that was shot up mm -hmm. in 2000. And I read about it in the San Francisco Chronicle, and it made me want to get into journalism and come back. That said, I also recognize, like, I'm adjacent to these things, not of them. I have that privilege and that I'm removed and, and haven't been, you know, had to deal with the insults and harassment and things I heard from people that went to Backstreet. I've never been targeted by a gunman walking into a bar because of my yeah. identity. So I see that as well. But yeah, everything you're saying right. just resonates deeply with me. Well, and I think that, you know, what has happened is that um, a very loud, very narrow narrative and set of stereotypes have been ascribed to Appalachia. And when we're all living in the context of those stereotypes and that narrative, it makes it really hard for people to get past it. Uh, it makes it really hard for people to see each other outside of those stereotypes and that narrative because it's just so loud. Like the volume is so high on it that even if you know it's not the case, it's exhausting 
Like, it's easier to just let the narrative be the narrative than to keep fighting against it all the time and to say, nope, we're here, we're visible, we're here, we're visible. It's more complicated. Like, that takes so much work. Um, and I think it can be emotionally and mentally exhausting. But at the same time, that is the thing that I think is the way forward. Like, I think the way forward is the way in which we see the whole range of another's that have made up Appalachia forever. Like none of this is new, right? Indian people being in West Virginia started in the seventies, black folks being in West Virginia started way before that. And yet growing up in West Virginia and West Virginia public schools, I didn't learn that history. I didn't learn about the Kanawha Salines and I lived 20 minutes from Malden. Right. I didn't learn about the battle of Blair mountain. I didn't learn about that history. It wasn't visible to me, even as a student in schools. And so I think a question that I, I want us to just think about is how actively are we even working internally to make that visible, to make that history visible and to make that current diversity visible? And when you look at some of the legislation um, that's at the statehouse right now, like it's hard not to think about that. Like I didn't learn those things and it wasn't against the law. It was like a chosen silence. And now we're looking at people who are trying to legislate that silence. Kanawha County so 76, 77 was the textbook wars, right? Like I think about this all the time as an adult. We did bomb threat drills all growing up. We were on the baseball field once every week for a bomb threat drill. Why are we doing those? Because of the textbook wars. Because in the 70s, people were throwing Molotov cocktails into school buildings and into buses to keep people from reading black writers and queer writers and to keep people from reading anything that disrupted the status quo. We're not far from that history even now. Right. So I just think like there is this scepter of violence that is always in the background threatening. Like if you disrupt the narrative, like we're here and we're going to let you know. And I think that that created such silence around my education. I didn't read a single author of color in my K to 12 education until I was a senior in high school. And I chose to do my term paper on Maya Angelou. That was the first author of color I read in K to 12. And that, again, it wasn't the law. It was that in sort of like the assumed silence or the imposed silence, like social silence. It doesn't serve the people who look like me. It doesn't serve queer kids. It doesn't serve black kids. It doesn't serve brown kids. I don't think it serves white kids either, but it does serve a narrative that wants us to stay divided from each other, that doesn't want us to understand each other, that doesn't want us to see that we have more in common than we have different. It serves to divide. Obviously, you're very Appalachia focused. I'm curious about how that sort of changed your perception, even just over the course of writing this, this memoir. I think growing up, what was so interesting is like no one ever said that it was possible to stay like, you know, it was the 90s. The chemical industry was busting like the economy was just busting like teachers in my life, my parents like it was just everyone was like, you got to go. There's not going to be work here. You have to go. And so I took that as as word. Like I took that as the word of the adults in my life and I went. Um, and I like went into the world and I realized how much there was about Appalachia that is so lacking in the rest of the country. And so there is a part of me emotionally that still feels really connected. I can also look at the reality of being a queer brown person and thinking about the consequences that would come onto my body and my family of living in a place where my story is not one that is valued um, and one that is criminalized in a lot of ways, you know? Uh, and I think that's a really hard thing to hold. Um, it doesn't diminish my love of place or people, but it just makes it really hard to think about choosing into going into a space where there's such an active effort to erase me. At the same time, I have been so overwhelmed during this process by the ways in which folks in Appalachia have embraced this story. I feel like I've built like all whole new relationships with incredible Appalachian writers. I feel like there are queer activists who reach out to me on the regular, um, looking for ways to connect and looking for ways to sort of share stories and 
sort of talk about how my writing's resonating for them and share the work that they're doing. I think that, you know, going back to Heinemann this summer, I'm going to be teaching in their young Appalachian Writers Workshop, which is a new workshop that they're starting for young people. And there's this really emotional feeling about the idea that young Appalachian kids are going to see me as a, as a face of Appalachian writing. Like that's kind of mind blowing. Um, Cause it's not something I could have ever imagined growing up. And I think the idea that a young person would see me and be like, okay, if this person is Brown and queer and they're from Appalachia and they're writing their story, like what space does it make for, for the young people who come after us? I just feel really lucky to be able to do that. And I feel also like it's such an important difference in the way that, that these young people are going to get to experience what it means to be Appalachian versus the definition I sort of understood when I was growing up. What do you, what's the most important thing that you want Appalachians, listeners, readers to take away from your story? I really hope that Appalachian readers who read this book um, feel like it holds them, feel like their identities are honored and valued, that the communities that they live in are respected. I think it feels really important to me. I mean, I think the title says this, right? That notion of another, it's not just that I'm another. It's the idea that Appalachia is much more than the narrative it is given by mainstream media. And I hope that for Appalachian folks, they feel that when they read this book, they feel me pushing and pushing and pushing to expand the way people understand the place that I come from and the the place that I really deeply love um, and people who I really deeply love. Nima Avashia, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Mason. I love doing this with you. That was Nima Avashia, who lives and teaches in Boston. Her book is Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place, available from West Virginia University Press. Hey, and we're still collecting your suggestions for summer books. Let us know what you're reading by emailing us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Or leave us a message on Instagram or Twitter, at in Appalachia. And if you missed last week's book episode, check it out. Visit our website at wvpublic.org, or find it wherever you get your podcasts. An art installation reclaimed abandoned coal mining land in Pennsylvania for native plant and animal species. The Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh hosted an outing there in connection with an art exhibit. Reporter Jackie Sieber went along and has this story. A group of about 15 people arrived by bus to environmental reclamation artist Angelo Ciotti's property. They're here because Jose Diaz, chief curator at the Andy Warhol Museum, wanted to connect artist Paolo Peavy's exhibit, I Want It All, which bridges the relationship between human manipulation and wildlife, to Ciotti's restoration art. There's a really uh, robust ecosystem that's been revitalized and to bring science and the arts together, I think is something that Andy Warhol would have uh, celebrated. Be careful, we're going through the wetland. Ciotti guides guests along a muddy path to his 22-acre earthwork called Twin Stupas. The installation is two mounds, each the size of a football field. One is inverted 45 feet deep, and the other is 60 feet high. It kind of looks like the yin-yang symbol. This shape was chosen because the stupa was the first shape we know of in civilization. People buried their dead in the fetal position in a mound. When Ciotti purchased the land in 1970, it was contaminated from an abandoned surface coal mine. The mining altered the landscape and caused acid mine drainage. Ciotti directed the drainage to small settling ponds made with limestone for treatment. It was like a moonscape, stopping the flow of silt and indigenous vegetation started taking hold and the entire valley was covered with grass. 
Now the land is rich with wildflowers, pine trees, and songbirds. That's where Nicolaitis, an avian conservation biologist, comes in. He introduced Diaz to the twin stupas a year ago. Jose was interested in my conservation work, the fact that I banned in these human-altered landscapes, and decided that a field trip out here to see my conservation work in this formerly degraded landscape would be an interesting way of framing the work of Paula Peavy and, and vice versa. Peavy's art installation has a lot of feathers, such as her collection of 27 colorful feathery polar bears mimicking human behavior. Earlier in the morning, Leatus and his assistant set up large, nearly transparent nets near the stupas. The nets have pockets of very thin thread to catch birds. They're then placed in a cotton sack to calm them down. He catches migratory birds to record data and puts a tiny band around their leg. Each band has a unique number that tracks the bird. It fits like a little bracelet and rotates up and down the bird's leg. For the bird banding demonstration, Leatus opens a cotton bag and out pops a reddish-brown forest bird that already has a band on its leg. Viries do breed around the stupas. This is one of our longest migrating songbirds. This bird comes from the central, central South America because it has a band on it. It's coming back to its territory, so that's really exciting. He then measures the bird's wings and beak. Then he blows on the bird's translucent skin to check for how much fat it has and to determine its sex. It's an after-second-year male. Once the information is collected, Leatus lets go of the bird. After the demonstration, participants like Kevin Patterson were thrilled about how intimate the experience was. Absolutely fantastic use of a couple of hours uh, to, to learn about this and, and to think about how we can contribute to it moving forward. For The Allegheny Front, I'm Jackie Sieber. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. Herschel Woody Williams was the nation's last surviving World War II Medal of Honor recipient. He was a West Virginia native and died June 29, 2022, at the age of 98. Before he passed, though, he did an interview with WVPB's Trey Kay for the podcast Us and Them. Here's an excerpt recorded for Veterans Day 2021. The Civilian Conservation Corps took Williams to Montana, where he spent about a year building fences. But his time with the CCC came to an abrupt end on December 7th, 1941. Yeah, so that's where I was when Pearl Harbor was bombed and um, they announced that America was going to war and that those that were over 18 years of age, you could enlist and go straight into the army from there. But if you're under 18, then you had to have a parent consent. And I did. I was only 17. Okay. So they put me on a train and sent me back to West Virginia. But I wanted to become a, uh, a Marine. Why, why a Marine? Well, I had two brothers who were drafted in early 1942. And they had to wear their Army uniform, that old brown woolen Army uniform. And I thought that's the ugly thing, but... Uh, you, you thought the Army uniform was ugly? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, the Marine Corps dress blues were so much more neat. You know? <laughs> and we had a couple guys in the community that had gone into the Marine Corps at different times. They weren't even related. But in those days, you got home one time a year, and you had to wear a uniform. The Marine Corps required you to wear a uniform all the time you were home. And they would do that, and of course, people were just, particularly girls, liked those dress blue uniforms. <laughs> and I thought, well, that, that's the way to go. That was a benefit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a month after his 18th birthday, Woody Williams went to a recruiter's office and told them that he wanted to be a Marine. But there was one question on the paperwork he got from the recruiter that tripped him up. One of the questions was religion. And he had said a number of times as we were filling out these forms, everything on this form must be complete or it will not be accepted. Yeah. And I didn't know what to put in that block of religion. I didn't have any. I'd never been to church in my life. We didn't have a church in the community. Uh, my mother had a Bible, and that's where we kept all of our records. That's, she kept records of marriages, deaths, and births. So what would you put down? 
Well, well, I, I didn't know what to put in there. I was going to ask the recruiter what I should put in there. And I'm standing behind a little Italian boy that's a little shorter than me. And he's got his paper ready to give to the recruiter. And I just look over his shoulder and I see the letter C in there. And I became a Catholic right there. <laughs> <laughs> when I got to boot camp out in San Diego, I had to go to Mass on Sunday morning. Couldn't understand a word they said. They were talking in Latin. I didn't know what it was, but that's what they were speaking in. <laughs> My dog tag shows I was a Catholic. And had I been killed, I would have gotten the last rites, whether I won them or not. Because yeah, I was listed as a Catholic. After basic training, Williams shipped out to Guam, a, a small island in the Philippine Sea. His basic training focused on all-purpose infantry skills. But one day, a bunch of weird-looking boxes showed up in Guam for his division. We got a whole bunch of them, so we broke the boxes open to see what, you know, there's supposed to be a supply of something. And here are flamethrowers that none of us had ever seen before. We didn't even know it existed. Williams and his fellow Marines thumbed through the instruction manual for the flamethrowers. What they saw was disturbing. They had to strap flammable liquid onto their backs and go into combat. We were concerned that it might explode on your back. It's got gasoline in it. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So we set it out in the field all by itself, and then we got away from it and shot at it with M1 rifles and machine guns to see if we could explode that thing. If it's going to explode out there, it could explode back here on your back, you know. We could never penetrate the metal. It was too thick, heavy, real heavy steel. That's what made it weigh so much. Williams experienced combat in Guam, but it was when his battalion set out for Iwo Jima that he remembers being terrified. In 36 days, the Marines had lost 7,000 men. And we lost almost 5,000 people the first day. Yeah. So uh, after that first day, and having lost so many Marines, that we were told that night of the first day, we are going ashore tomorrow. So they got us up. We ate chow at 3 o'clock in the morning and then got off the ships at 5 into Higgins' boats and went out in a rendezvous area where the Higgins boats were circling, waiting for the ship, the uh, shore master to say, come on in, we got room. And in the Higgins boat, is that, is that the boat that we see in the, in the films where the troops are inside and they kind of have the door? Yeah, the, the front open, opens it and you run out of it, yeah. Uh, previous to that, we had to go over the side of the ship. That's what we did at Guam. And at Guam, we jumped off into the water. So, well, take me to that moment. What was that like? You're in the Higgins boat, and, and, and you're basically coming up to the beach at Iwo Jima. What was that? What's that memory like? Very, very scary. Because you're coming out, and everybody, when the ramp drops, we were told, when the ramp drops, that's what we call it, a ramp, everybody goes, you know, quickly. Because as soon as you hit, you spread out so that you won't be a target, you know. And you don't know what you're going to run into. You don't know whether you're going to run into a machine gun or rifleman or whatever. I can remember when we got to the beach, it was so chaotic. The uh, 4th Marine Division, which was in the sector where we were, uh, they'd been pinned there for all day and all night and the next day, they finally broke through the Japanese line and began to move forward uh, and toward Mount Suribachi. That was their objective, was to take Mount Suribachi. And that gave us room to come in. And uh, that uh, was actually the second day of the campaign. And uh, uh, there was just bodies everywhere. There were packs and, and uh, tanks blowing up and trucks blowing up and jeeps blowing over. And that, it was mayhem. chaotic, mayhem. Yeah. 
But seeing all that, but the, the thing that stuck with my mind and has always been there and it, it'll never go away, with all the Marines that have been killed, in addition to Navy corpsmen, uh, they had no place to bury them. They couldn't send them back to ships, had no way of transporting them back to the ships. So they rolled them in their ponchos. Everybody had to carry a poncho and just stack them up like cordwood. And there were great numbers of them. And I remember seeing that, and they were stacked right along the edge of the, uh, the beach, just, just above the water level where it came in. Uh, and eventually, uh, in order to do something with them, they dug a huge trench and uh, stretched a rope across the front of it, or on one side of it, and they put the one person's dog tag on the rope and the other dog tag on the person. We had two dog tags. They put the dog tag on the rope and then one with the person so they would know that's the individual in this location. And then they just placed them body by side, side by side, in a big deep trench and then covered them over with a bulldozer. That was their burial site until we got cemeteries built. Once we got the cemeteries built, then they exhumed and placed them in the cemetery. was given a hero send-off. He was memorialized in Charleston and in Washington, D.C. in July of 2022. Following the memorial in Washington, Williams' body was returned to West Virginia for private services. That entire Us and Them podcast episode is called Last Man Honored. It's available on our website at wvpublic.org or on your favorite podcast app. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, and the Claude Worthington Benenden Foundation. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Chris Knight, Chris Stapleton, Harvey and Copeland, June Carter Cash, and Little Sparrow. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.